0: Great. Well, it is uh, good to be here. Uh, bumped into Jack before the meeting, who said, "Oh, you're always here these days." Because the two Sundays that he was here uh, this summer, I've been, we've been here. So that's a, that's a quite a sort of a miracle, really. But um, it is good to be here. And I've been asked to kick off this series, mini-series that you're doing this term on the first letter of Paul and his fellow apostles to the Thessalonians. But I'm going to start in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, And the reason for that is you can launch into a letter uh, that's written, but actually you don't necessarily have the backstory. And so I want to try and explain the backstory of this letter to the Thessalonians if I can. Um, By the way, we would value your prayers. We are off to the States and then to Canada on Wednesday, and I'm going to say quite honestly that Lorraine has been struggling with uh, intestinal issues for several months now. And uh, so she's in faith. but there's just a little tad of anxiety as well. So if you could especially pray for her, more than for me, that would be, be great. But you can pray for us as well. We have our International Salt Light International team meeting uh, that starts next Sunday. There's a conference before that that we're going to from Thursday to Sunday. And then we're going to Canada for uh, sort of a couple of events there as well. Um, all of that moving around um, can be stressful and stress affects guts uh, i 'm sure some of you know that, uh, and so you know if if God stirs you to pray, especially for Lorraine, that would be that would be good. Um, okay, here we go so um, Thessalonica is in Macedonia, Macedonia now is quite a small sort of portion of what used to be Macedonia years ago uh, in the centuries when there was a Macedonian empire that was led by Alexander the Great. Now I'm trying not to blind you with too much detail and too much history because I know that's the point at which people turn off, but you have all heard about Alexander the Great, I'm sure, uh, who headed up this actually very impressive empire of uh, Macedonia. I'm going to have to move on from this. The title I've given to one Thessalonians chapter one, just so you see, it is "What makes a church flourish?" Because, uh, because the leaders have decided to read this letter together because it's about a church that is flourishing and what makes a church flourish. And so as we're praying for growth, and we're praying for the blessing of God, unashamedly on our church, we want other churches to be blessed as well, we want other churches to grow, but we're definitely praying that we will grow, and that we will see breakthrough. Um, so this is, this is sort of a lead into that theme. But if I can point out to you, um, if you can see that map, which is a little bit... I've got a pointer here somewhere. Uh, now, now I've gone and advanced the thing. This is, te- this is technology. This is, this is too difficult for me, you understand. Um, I'll try again. Here we go. So, Paul had spent a fair bit of time around this area uh, in Turkey and various other places. And he gets to a point here where he starts saying, where do I go now? And this story is told in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16. And he feels, he feels sort of ah resisted. He has an idea that he should go one of two ways, but neither of them seem to come clear in his, in his thinking. I mean, basically, Paul wants to go everywhere. You understand? He wants to go everywhere with this great news of the gospel, uh, but you still need a plan. And he's come so far across Turkey. He's been to Ephesus and other places, to Derby, Lister, Iconium, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and he, oh, here we've done it again. Let's go back. All right? And my thumbs are too big. That's the problem. Uh, and so he's waiting here. And suddenly, in a dream one night, he has a vision of a man from Macedonia, that's this area, saying, come over and help us. And so the issue is resolved for him. He's going to go to Macedonia. Okay, I'm just going to leave that there for a moment. Uh, Macedonia was the kingdom of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had conquered the known world of his time, and he wept because there was no more world to conquer. (laughs) There you are. Alexander declared that he'd been sent by God to unite, to pacify, and to reconcile the whole world. His aim was to marry the East and the West at the same time. When Paul gets a call from a Macedonian man it would have been hard for him not to think of Alexander the Great. Now for us, Macedonia is shrunk and the world has changed enormously. But for a man like Paul of his day, the the splendor of the Macedonian Empire was, you know, all the stories were still told. And the vision of a man like Alexander was still impressive. So Macedonia was Alexander's original kingdom. Uh, so he's got Alexander in mind, I'm suggesting to you. Uh, we're not told that in the story, because I am reading between the lines, but you've got to try and understand how... So a call to Macedonia is significant. It's not a small call. It might be a smaller call today, but it wasn't a small call in Paul's mind. And he's, ah, Macedonia, the influence, the vigorous life of cities in Macedonia was impressive. So he ends up going to Philippi. Philippi was named after Alexander the Great's father. So, you know, you can't go to Philippi and not think of Alexander's family. From there, He goes on to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was named after Alexander's sister. Right, so he's going to all these places which have history and which have vision and, you know, are significant places. And for an apostle, if you want to take a world for Christ, you probably need to take Macedonia and Rome. (laughs) Because, of course, Rome succeeded Macedonia as the most significant empire in the world of the few centuries leading up to Christ. So, this was significant. This is no small thing. And Thessalonica is up here. It is a busy, bustling city with a significant port It's on trade routes, it's wealthy, it's prosperous, and the main trade route it's on... I've done it again, let's go back. Here we go. The main trade route that it's on is going from Asia to Rome. So it's it's called the Ignatian Way. And so this is a very, very significant place that he comes to. Um, Now... One of the things, just to try and dial this down a little bit, that is really very frustrating for us, is that if we want to plant a church, we try and gather a team together to go to a new town or a new city and sort of to embed ourselves in, you know, that community. And it's a long-term plan. One of the things... uh, that is very frustrating for those of us who've done a fair bit of church planting is to go to Africa, where these churches just sprout up like nobody's business, especially I'm talking about sub-Saharan Africa. And all you need to do is find a tree, open your Bible, tell a few stories, preach the gospel, and on the second Sunday you have a hundred people in your church. I mean, this just isn't fair it really isn't. Something like that happened in Thessalonica. And we're told the story in Acts chapter 17. And I'm going to read it because this tells you something of the atmosphere of the city and what happened in the church. So here we go. Acts chapter 17 verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, don't worry about them, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul sorry, in search of Paul and Silas, in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king. Because in the Roman Empire there was only one, and that was Caesar, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Three Sundays ministry, and a church is established. Who'd like that sort of church planting? Now, I've read a few commentaries, I have to say, uh, this week, just to try and get my head around some of the, you know, the book and the text and so on and so forth, and there's quite a dispute that goes on between these commentaries, like how long Paul really stayed in Thessalonica, because many commentaries say, it can't have happened this fast. Well, that's an interesting sort of supposition, isn't it? It can't have happened this fast. And so even some very reputable commentators sort of say, oh, he was probably there for a few weeks or maybe six months while the trouble was sort of brewing and all the rest of it. The Bible text doesn't say that. It says he reasoned with them for three Sundays and, and, and then trouble arose because of the success of his ministry. And somehow in the midst of the trouble, and of course people turn up on Jason's doorstep Uh, to try and find these visitors and they've been spirited out of the city just like they were in Berea later so so what's going on here and for that matter as the apostle Paul and his team continue his journeys here's the question I was only there such a very short time I wonder how the church is going and one of the big sort of questions in Paul's mind as he continues his journeys is how's the church in Thessalonica doing? Because it's a busy, bustling, wealthy city. And it, we'd only just got going. And so he sends Silas and Timothy back to the city. He doesn't go himself because he is, you know, he stirs up trouble by his presence. But he sends others back to check up on him. And then when he hears the news, he writes this first letter to the Thessalonians. And we're going to read chapter 1. So here we go. I'd like you to notice, by the way, although I just said he wrote this one, and it's called Paul's letter to the Thessalonians in most of our Bibles. Actually, it's introduced by saying Paul, Silas, and Timothy wrote this together. This was an apostolic Uh, letter sent by a team of three here so here we go paul silas and timothy to the church of the thessalonians in god the father and the lord jesus christ grace and peace to you we always thank god for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers it was an infant church and they didn't want it to struggle We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, I'm going to come back to these phrases, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So, Paul has sent back Silas and Timothy to take the temperature of what's happening in Thessalonica and the news is good. The church is flourishing. And so here's the question today, what makes a church flourish? What makes a church grow and do well? What sort of people do we need to be to see the same flourishing amongst us? Now, there were some challenges, and you're going to hear some of them over the next few weeks. <laughs> One was that they very, very clearly had got hold of the fact that Jesus was coming back again. They got it so fixed in their sights that uh, a number of them had stopped working. Because all you had to do is sit back with your feet up and wait for Jesus to come, and everything was going to be wonderful. Uh, Paul says that's not the way to do it, uh, and we're not exactly that sure. Um, But interestingly enough, the second coming is mentioned in every chapter of this letter. That's unusual if you compare it with all the other letters. But Paul tells them, you work for a living, get on with it. Uh, There was a tendency to despise proper authority, even within the church. Chapter 5 is going to address that issue. There was a danger of people who'd come out of a pagan background relapsing into immorality. Chapter 4 is going to deal with that issue. And there was a certain amount of division within the church, and Paul picks this up, and the other apostles pick this up as they go on. So let's just think, first of all, where does this church live? I love the first verse, and it simply says this, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A flourishing church knows where it lives. And it doesn't live in Oxford. A flourishing church lives in God. Okay, it's about God and His presence. This is our identity. The Father is the air that we breathe. Uh, We are in the Father, and the Father is in us. That's who we are. And if you go to another nation, that's who you are. And uh, I just like the emphasis on nations, and we've had a look at Macedonia and all the, all the other stuff as well, you know, because the gospel is for all the nations. I'm going to say a little bit more about that later because I can't resist it. Um, but we live in God, and I love the songs that we're singing, you know, you're a good, good father, that's who you are, uh, you know, and we're his children, that's who we are. Those. Those simple songs tell us things that we need to soak ourselves in to understand where we live. We don't live in Oxford, we live in the Father. That's where the church lives, that's where a flourishing church lives. And sometimes we're so concerned about the geographical place that we're in that we don't understand the spiritual place that we're in and that's the thing that makes us who we are and gives us strength and power and anointing and passion. Amen. Thank you. Yes, please feel free to say amen. And uh, you know, the other simple song that, you know, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Isn't that a great simple song that we're singing these days? Uh, Because because it's possible to be enslaved by all sorts of fear and anxiety and pressure from the world around us. But we're children of God and that gives us freedom and we understand who we are. And we understand the air that we breathe and the life that we live. We live in God. Amen. (laughs) And we live in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice this title. The Lord Jesus Christ now it was going to take the church three or four centuries to work out uh, a sort of proper doctrine of the trinity and and that's history and you know we we do need to get into that and understand it but now this re- letter was probably written about ad 50 So, this was not longer after Jesus died. And here, straight away, there is an intuitive understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is the name of a man who walked around in Galilee. He was a man. He was fully human. He touched people. He was a friend of sinners, etc., etc. So, Jesus is right in the middle of our salvation and our life in God. And he's. The Christ. Now, the Christ is a title. The Old Testament talks about the Messiah. And the New Testament talks about the Christ. One's Hebrew. The other is Greek. But it means the anointed one. He is the anointed servant of the Lord to bring salvation. That's who the Christ is. So this man who walked the earth in Galilee and in Palestine and in Israel, this man it was a, is God's anointed servant to bring salvation to the earth. And he's the Lord. Now this word Lord, Greek kurios, is the Old Testament Yahweh word. He's the I am, the Lord of everything. When I am is around, you can tack all sorts of other names to him because he is everything. I am your healer. I am your provider, etc. You could just keep adding because he's everything. So where does this church live? In, in Thessalonica. It lives in the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, the man who is everything and God's anointed servant. What I'm trying to say to you is it didn't take the early church really three centuries to understand. had to understand how to frame the Trinity and how to talk about the Trinity and so on, but instinctively they knew who this man was. He was the Christ. He was the Lord. He was the one who said, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the water of life. I am, I am. And he's calling sort of all sorts of echoes into place in people's minds when he uses that sort of phrase. Where do we live? (laughs) We live in God the Father. And we live in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our security. That's our identity we need to understand who we live in. Lorraine and I had a great great joy a few months ago visiting the church in Leeds and uh, two Muslims had just been born again and they were handed the night we, we were there their new Bibles and they started sort of going through it excitedly and and they were so excited to have Bibles in their hands and and they were thoroughly steeped in the quran but they said oh, this is fascinating this is wonderful they said the quran it seems to us that the quran is all about law but the bible is all about forgiveness <laughs> we said you've got it <laughs> i think they've got it you know in that famous line you know uh, they've got it Now, they understand now who they're living in. They're living in the life of the God who is forgiveness and grace and mercy and welcome and all those things that we have celebrated today. Hallelujah. So, that's where this church lives. That's where any flourishing church lives. That's where we're going to spend more time in prayer. (laughs) And it's not because it's a duty that, you know, we've got to sort of give ourselves. It's because... (laughs) You know, it's like Caroline said earlier, we're hungry for God. We want to know him better. We want to live in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just want to live in Oxford. We just want to be relevant to all that's happening around us. We want to live in God because that's what's going to make us powerful in touching people all around us. Anybody say amen to that? Okay, so what things then motivate growth? Now, Paul uses three phrases. I keep saying Paul, just remember it's an apostolic team. Paul speaks for Silas and Timothy as well. The letter comes from them. Okay. What three things really motivate these Thessalonian Christians? Well, verses two and three say this. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father, and here are the three phrases. They are powerful phrases. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, work can be inspired by all sorts of things. It can be inspired by duty, obligation, the need for money, reward, fear. But Paul says, Your work's inspired by faith. Faith is seeing things that are unseen, it is seeing that there are spiritual realities that are far more important than the realities of our everyday life, that we need to give ourselves to and live for and live on. There are things that we dream of because we've seen the unseen, we've heard some things. The prices are going back to the nation that they're working in because they've seen, they've seen the power of a kingdom which can transform that nation. They've only seen the tip of the iceberg yet in terms of conversations that they've had and encounters and all the rest of it, which have been very exciting and very encouraging, and which are only allowed to give us little snippets of. We'd love to hear more, but you can't, so there. Because <laughs> it's not very safe. Right? But they've seen something, that's why they're going. These other guys who are going to other nations have seen something. That's why they're going to those nations because they've seen something. That's work inspired by faith. I haven't had the privilege of visiting the prices yet, but I've had the privilege of visiting Jack and Claire. Uh, What do I say? They live in the most sort of, well, I think they enjoy it. They think they're a great adventurer, but it's like sort of camping every day of your life. Uh, you know how some of us can stand transformed for a week because we go home to our showers and all the rest of it. But, you know, they're at it, you know, 52 weeks in the year. There's no question about it. And uh, they're cooking on their camping stove and they're, you know, carting water around and all the rest of it. And, and they're thriving and flourishing because they've seen something. And I remember the first visit I had to jack and Claire, and i've been a couple of times now but the first visit we went up on an outcrop of a sort of hill a rocky hill just outside the town that they're living in and you know at a certain point you say well, shall we pray for the nation shall we pray for this town and of course yes and I remember Jack lifting up his voice and praying for this town and this nation that we were in. And it's like, whoa, he'd seen something. He'd seen not the barrenness of the nation or the difficulty of the nation, but a nation coming up under the government of God and being transformed Uh, by the kingdom of god he'd seen and he prayed out what he'd seen and it was all faith that's what we need these guys are not special they're only too aware of their weakness but they've seen something and we can see the same thing we can see the kingdom transforming our city our workplace our communities the kingdom transforming the lives of people around us. Because this kingdom that we're living in, because we're living in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, has the power to touch people all around us and to change them for good and forever. Yes. Amen? Yeah. Whoa. Isn't this good? Yeah. <laughs> so this is work inspired by faith. Something like, oh, do I have a, no, something else to... <laughs> am like, is the Lord going to load me with one more thing? Now this work, the, we give ourselves to what we do because we've seen something that is so exciting. We've seen a vision of the kingdom transforming our communities and we want to see people's lives broken, lives healed and restored. Uh, we want to see people who are walking through unnecessary suffering because they have no hope and no God. Now that is really very tragic For people who were made by God. We want to see their lives transformed as they get in touch again with the God who made them. And that's why we want to talk about the God that we have. Your labor prompted by love. A couple of weeks ago I was in North Africa. Once again in an Islamic nation. It's a funny thing, living in closed nations. uh, You sort of feel like, well, you don't belong. You don't fit. You're aware of realities that these people don't understand. And we ended up in this massive souk or marketplace and people milling around over the place and I find myself overwhelmed by these places because you think, they don't know the God that we know. Isn't that tragic? When you see hopelessness, lostness, you think, isn't this tragic? Many times I think to myself, I wish I could take all of OCC into these nations seriously because when you touch it you're changed now next week we're next week next summer we are going to have a summer of mission you're being invited to sign up for mission teams that are going into nations everywhere in the world you may think what can we possibly achieve well before you can achieve anything God wants to achieve something in you He wants to change us. He wants to touch our hearts. He wants to change our hearts. And he wants to fill us with love for lost people. That's why going out into the city is so good as well. Going, isn't that right, Simon? And you touch lost people and you find, as then Keith said to us, you know, you can share, you can do people good, you can bless people. Isn't that great? So uh, our labor is prompted by love. When we watch the news and see two hundred and fifty thousand refugees streaming out of Myanmar into Bangladesh, we're thinking, Lord, Lord, you love these people. You start praying your heart out for more refugees who are getting pushed around, and saying, "What can we do to help? Can we give? Are the people who are going what?" part can we play we're praying for the right people to get in i hope you watch the news and pray at the same time ireland has caught up in the wake of storm irma there's <laughs> this is marvelous posting on facebook i read just yesterday of a couple called harvey and irma <laughs> harvey was 102 and irma was 94 and they said, they have been married all these years. They said, these are the wrong names for these storms. <laughs> <laughs> We've never faced those storms. It was just a wonderful little posting. <laughs> Endurance prompted by hope. Here's one, since we're talking about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, before he went uh, off on one of his campaigns, divided all his possessions amongst his friends. Gave him away. He wouldn't need that, (laughs) because he was a goal-orientated, visionary man. Someone said to him, but you're keeping nothing for yourself. Alexander said, oh yes I am, I have my hopes. (laughs) Can you hear that? (laughs) You know, he's got vision, he's got hope, there is something that is solid for him. I love that passage in The book of Hebrews, which talks about us having this hope like an anchor, safe and sure. And it it holds us up into heavenly places. Most boats get anchored down into the ground. But we get anchored by hope into heavenly places. It's eternal. It's fixed. Anybody say amen? Whoa. Endurance prompted by hope. Sometimes... You will endure through difficult, turbulent circumstances, through prolonged people's times of sickness or whatever it may be, through difficulty, adversity, unpopularity. I don't know what it may be, but you'll endure through that because you have hope of something better, of a time when the kingdom is going to come and fill this earth then Christ comes again. You know, we're just very conscious, aren't we, that sometimes heaven seems a long way from earth. And we plod along in earth. But let me tell you, let me tell you, there is a Savior coming in future time who is going to bring heaven right to this earth. And this earth will look very like heaven. There will be no gap. There will be no distance. There will be no separation. You know, we will live in his presence and he will live in, in, with us and we will be his people. These are solid foundations. And if we've got solid foundations of hope that God wants to change this city, uh, because God's right at the center, we'll make it. I want to encourage you as the people of God to walk in faith, seeing the reality of the unseen. Don't let go of your hope in Christ. With love, with compassion for the lost, And a desire to see lost people in the security of solid eternal hope. And hope which is not walking into the night, but is walking towards the dawn. Do you understand the difference? (laughs) Sometimes we think we're walking into the night, but actually we're walking towards the dawn, which is going to change everything. So... Paul, Silas, and Timothy go on and say, you, you have grown because of these three things. and I want to encourage you simply to get hold of these three things again. Say, that's the sort of church we want to be. That's the sort of person I want to be. This is what's going to cause me to flourish in Christ and to grow in Christ and to keep going in Christ and to be powerful and strong and anointed by Christ living like this. Amen? And now, just to finish off. It's the rest of the chapter. So, what sort of lifestyle do we need to live uh, to grow as God wants us to grow? Well, here I'm just reading through the rest of the, the passage, really, as I already have done for verse four. We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He's chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. That's the first sort of lifestyle we need. Not simply be talking words but looking for the power of God to come and hit our lives, be part of our lives, be part of our neighbor's lives, that we're not going to give up until we see people's lives transformed, situations give way to the lordship of Christ, etc. We are unhappy, profoundly unhappy with Coming and singing our songs about the greatness of God and not seeing it in our daily lives. Anybody say amen to that? We've got to see it. We become consumed to see the power of God break out into our lives and other people's lives. And we will not give up, but we will go on wrestling with God just like Jacob wrestled uh, with that angel for the blessing of God. Amen? Okay, and here's the next thing. Um, Not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. Well, I put here, with deep conviction of the Holy Spirit, and not just fluffy feelings. Okay. Uh, You know I'm after something here. Somehow, in charismatic churches, the Holy Spirit sort of gets connected to fluffiness, slight craziness... Uh, you know do you know have you looked on the internet <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not pointing any fingers because we could be just as guilty of, of, of this ourselves but, but these people in Thessalonica had grown because they'd encountered the Holy Spirit and had deep convictions about you know the things the truth of God right this was solid foundation not fluffy feeling stuff but solid foundation that they were living by. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Okay there's the third thing. They embraced the good news of Jesus Christ with joy, even though it meant suffering. And the suffering it meant was being unpopular in the city where anything went. (laughs) It meant being unpopular, it meant that you were swimming against the tide. And sometimes we Christians are muted in our day, in our society, because we feel ourselves swimming against the tide that is flowing against us. I'm sure you know it's only live fish that swim against the tide and it's dead ones that float with it. You understand what I'm saying? There's something within us that uh, we're prepared to embrace the suffering of unpopularity and the truth of God's word and you know the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and the clarity of the gospel message. We'll embrace these things because... Uh, because it's worth everything. And we embrace it with joy. And it goes on. So you became a model, verse 7, to all the believers in Macedonia and Kiah. The Lord's message rang out from you. Don't you like that phrase? It didn't just sort of drift out underneath the you know, surface. Right? Can, I, can I just suggest this to you? Right. No, no, no. The good news of Jesus is something that we trumpet. Now, how you have trumpeting in other nations might have to have a different quality to it. But you're still there to be clear (laughs) that the good news of Jesus is the transforming power of God for the salvation of all of us sinners and for nations. You trumpeted out. It rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia, your faith in God has become known, everywhere (laughs) isn't that wonderful we don't want to hide our light under a bucket (laughs) we want to shine with the light of Christ wherever we are therefore we do not need to say anything about it verse 9 for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. (laughs) Clear testimony of turning from darkness to serve the living God. There are times when you're in other nations and this sort of just comes a bit clearer to you. So I remember being in South India one day and As I'm sitting there in a friend's house, we hear together drums and singing and shouting. And I say, Eddie, what's that? And Eddie says to me, well, it's people who follow the local god. They're up in the hills there. And they're singing and shouting to their local hill god. A couple of days later, I read Psalm 121 and I suddenly got a revelation. It says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes not from the God of the hills, but from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And I suddenly saw we don't have a little domestic hill God. We have a big God who made heaven and earth. We don't have to go up a hill to see a local hill God. <laughs> sing our little song there. We sing our God to a big God who made heaven and earth. Yes. And we're not ashamed. <laughs> they turn from idols to the living God. That's what we're praying in this nation, and in other nations, that people will turn from their idols, whatever their idols are. And they may be spiritual in form, they may be supernatural in form, or they may be materialistic in form, or you know, things that we give ourselves to, to give ourselves pleasure in this life, or whatever it may be. The idols may be different in lots of different nations of the world, but we're praying that people will turn from their idols to serve the living God. And everywhere it will be sung of, in all the nations of the world, they've turned from idols to the living God. That's the testimony. Anybody say amen? Amen. And finally, and to wait, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Waiting for Jesus' second coming. I sometimes feel that our faith is very this-worldly and perhaps doesn't look enough to our hope. A salvation work has started when Christ came to the earth and he died on the cross for the salvation of nations and the gospel is being preached in all nations and people are still coming to Christ and 2 Peter chapter 3 says that God's not sent Jesus back yet because he's holding the door open for salvation for people from it, because he, he wants all men everywhere to have the opportunity to repent. That's why, that's why the timescale seems a little bit longer than we might have imagined, because God's holding the door open for nations to come to him and to repent and to find life in him. But he will come <coughs> back again to complete the work that he started in all the nations will be both before his throne and on the earth, glorifying him in the new heavens and the new earth, because this salvation will not fail. What sort of people do we need to be, to be a flourishing church and to live this sort of life? That sort of lifestyle will get us a long way. God bless you.